now we will speak the common language of the enemy. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Okay. Uh, 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 let me... My, the topic will be effectively ideology in cinema today. This may sound strange because the commonplace today is that we live in a post-ideological society. Who cares about big ideological issues today, at least in the hedonist Western countries, the motto, the injunction, commandment that society is addressing to us, it's not sacrifice yourself for some higher goal, it's rather a vague injunction to enjoy, something like enjoy, realize your true self, reach spiritual fulfillment, where is ideology here? I will precisely try to use some Hollywood and other films to show how perhaps more than ever we are in ideology. Let me begin just to first go quickly through some popular films. Let me begin by a film which I think makes my case, articulates my case in a pure way. Very simple commercial film, British Michael Epstein's Enigma. You know about a group of scientists who in 43 in the Bletchley Park, the famous uh, uh, in the suburbs of London, Old House, or rather further from London, where they tried to crack the German secret code, Enigma. Uh, it's again a group of scientists, mathematicians, and so on, trying to crack the code. At the same time, it's a love story between the main scientist, vaguely based on Ellen Turing, although in a Hollywood style. They just made some small, unimportant changes, like from homosexual, they changed him into heterosexual, and so on. But it's an end. towards the end of the film, they openly almost articulate the lesson, which is, we can crack even the most complex enigmas. I mean, military enigmas, coding machines, and so on. But we will never be able to crack the enigma of femininity of a woman. So this is typical, I claim, Hollywood. And this is first what I will try to demonstrate to you through some examples. Hollywood's formula, one of the formulas of the production of the couple, that whatever topic the film is about, it can be Titanic, it can be uh, the world catastrophe, asteroid hitting Earth, it can be October Revolution, it can be uh, Second World War, and so on. The war itself, this vast historical reality, is staged, shown as a kind of a background for, as it were, the true story, which is the story for the creation of the couple. So let me go back to this film briefly, Enigma. This is what makes it a Hollywood film, that this precisely this double meaning of Enigma, that the true enigma is not the German coding machine. The true enigma is woman, which we will never resolve, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, so now you will say, am I, am I not exaggerating here? Uh, I will try to give you some examples uh, from maybe even cinematographers where you would not expect it. Let's take first another one, the top of commercial cinema, Steven Spielberg. I chosen him because he is the exemplary of Hollywood today, and point two because uh, it can be 
because you know the films and because it can be so clearly shown, I claim how all his films, no matter what is the topic, Schindler's List, E.T., Jurassic Park, the topic can be dinosaurs, can be the Nazis and Holocaust, whatever you want. I claim that uh, the underlying story is not so much creation of the couple as the assertion of paternal authority, the restitution of paternal authority. Father is either absent or a failure, and through, through the narrative, father asserts his authority. You don't believe me? Let me give you some proofs. Uh, Molly, uh, let's start with uh, E.T. I hope the sound will work. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is from the beginning. Does it go on? Yes. From the beginning of E.T., the, the, before even the monster, the small one, appears, I mean, I don't know what is your sensibility, but every time I see this film with my son, I'm tempted to say if I were to encounter such a monster as it, I would squash him with my boots with pleasure. Uh, I claim it's really, it's absolutely crucial that the family, this is the first crisis they have, is a family abandoned by father. As we learn, father is in Mexico, and I think that the true role of E.T., it's the same as Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic. He's a matchmaker or the one who reconstructs the couple. Because precisely as a, it's really as a reply to this, uh, this is already the end, uh, sorry, the final scene where this is absolutely crucial, you see. Namely, what happened? The father is absent and then the scientists help who investigate this. One of the scientists, you've just seen him, is the good guy, as it were. And in the very last scene, he's already standing by the mother. You even see all of them. The family is reconstructed, so E.T. can go home. The role of E.T. is absolutely just to re restore to the family the paternal authority. Now, let's go on. Empire of the Sun. John Malkovich, the bad father, fatherless son, the problem is how to find a father. Jurassic Park. Please, go on. Uh, it's the crucial, this is, at the very beginning of the film, you will see the crucial role of Sam Neill, Moses Malozvuka Dadash, a little bit of sound wouldn't hurt here, as the evil father trying to scare the boy, you stare at him. At the end, you will see he will try to scare him by a long dinosaur teeth. Not from the front, but from the side. And I claim that the problem is, again, Sam Neill figure, bad father, how will he develop into a good father? You will have here this brutal attack, then in the next scene you will see it's that they are, after being attacked by dinosaurs, they go up to a large tree, this paternal figure with two, three children, and they are reconciled. At that point, he throws away the tooth, and the dinosaurs who come are herbivores, not carnivores, the good ones. So it's clear that the entire fury range of attacking bad dinosaurs is basically, as it were, the materialization, metaphoric realization of paternal fury. Father is furious, father 
turns into a good boy. Just watch carefully. He will, they will fall asleep. He will throw down as if he no longer needs the bad object. Then, please, leave it on. I will just go on. Schindler's List. I shocked my friends by telling them that Schindler's List is for me a remake of Jurassic Park, only a worse film. I think it purely manipulates all this Holocaust topic. It's really a story of Schindler, a bad father at the beginning, uh, a bad father in the sense of exploiting Jews, business opportunity, how he gradually turns into a good father figure. And at the end, that absolutely, I claim, potentially anti-Semitic, disgusting scene where, uh, where the Jews are basically reduced to children and he is embracing them and so on. Again, paternal authority uh, restored. Also, what I really think is beneath, uh, yes, here it will be, this already, I don't know, throw it down, doesn't matter. Uh, beneath the paternal, uh, uh, sorry, that beneath this, story, there is another problem with children, at least, if you noticed it, is that Spielberg couldn't resist a minimum of discretion. He had to show openly the moment when Schindler turns from bad guy to good guy. Maybe you remember the well-known scene when he's on a morning horse ride above the ghetto on a hill and sees how Germans are penetrating the ghetto, a, a girl, the only color detail in the film in red dress, and oh, at that moment, he becomes a good boy. I think this is vulgarity. The art of cinema is precisely not to show everything, not to show too much, which is why there is even another, uh, okay, whatever this means, I don't know, pretty good film, which I hate for this reason, Pollock, with, with uh, Ed Harris, where they couldn't resist showing the very moment when Pollock discovered action painting, the drunken Pollock, over kicks over uh, kicks over a bottle with colors and the colors spill and he looks ah that's it now now I discovered action painting okay Let, let's go on even the war of the worlds apparently a totally different film but it's the same it's really a story about Tom Cruise you remember at the beginning distrust bad father and through all these aliens attacking, he takes care of the children, the paternal authority is restructured. So this would be what I refer in the title of my talk, The Divine Detail. How the movies, you cannot imagine more different movies, like, uh, for example, uh, 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 Schindler's List, Empire of the Sun, E.T. But I claim the underlying story, this apparently marginal detail, paternal authority restored, is the key to it. A similar thing we find in, haha, the greatest, please, uh, go on to, it should be, if I didn't misplan it, Titanic now, please go on. Titanic is a special case which I really hate. There will be three scenes, the one where Leonardo DiCaprio paints her, the second one, the moment when the boat hits the iceberg, and the third one, uh, the death of Leonardo DiCaprio. The one key to Titanic, so that you will see it's the same formula, is uh, the exact moment when you should be very attentive to this. In the Hollywood melodramatic universe, such details have meaning. When exactly does the boat hit the iceberg? You remember, precisely after the couple makes love. 
beneath. Of course, if it were be only this, it would have been a standard upper-class melodrama where it's punishment for a double transgression. Sexual relations, which was, uh, they were not married and they are from different, more important social classes. But it's more complex. Uh, because if you watch it closely, the boat hits the iceberg at a precise moment when, after making love, they go up onto the deck and she, Kate Winslet, tells Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, the rich girl, I've decided, I have enough of my rich, corrupted life, now I want to go with you when we arrive to New York and even if we, we live a poor, destitute life, we will be happy and so on. At that point, accident. Here, I think the logic is much more cynical. It is that the catastrophe has to occur to present the true catastrophe, which would have been the two of them in New York. It's clear that probably their love would be over in one, two weeks, rich, spoiled girl and so on. So it's like, you know, the true catastrophe would have been the love fiasco. So there has to be a catastrophe to sustain the illusion Oh, this is the moment, yes, of, to sustain the illusion of love. Uh, it's the same as, let me give you a very problematic political example that I like. When I was young, 68, Soviet invasion to prevent the Prague Spring, people usually say the hope, the utopia of democratic socialism was crushed. I think it's exactly the opposite. They say it. In what sense? Imagine Soviet not intervening into Prague in 68 August. I claim only one of the two things would have happened. A, either uh, Czech, Czech Republic would simply probably turn to the West, we would get an ordinary Western democracy, or B, communists would at a certain point, they would have to, well, to take control again. Maybe a more co liberal communist regime, but still one. So I claim it was the Russian intervention which kept alive the illusion that only if if only the Russians were not to intervene, we would have a new truly democratic socialism, socialism, whatever, whatever. But there is, ah, please, more sound now, sound. <laughs> Be careful, this is the key. When she will notice that he is dead, she will start to shout, I will never let you go. Be Come back. Come back. But watch what she's doing with her hands while she's shouting, I will never let you go. She's pushing him away. <laughs> if you don't believe me, look at it. Come back. Come back. You know, many people were seduced with this, what some people ironically call uh, James Cameron Hollywood Marxism, you know, like <laughs> rich guys are ridiculously evil, poor guys are always good. But I think that here we learn that it's the Titanic, I think basically it's not even a love story. It's a story about a rich upper class girl who's, who has what we call identity crisis. And Leonardo DiCaprio is just some kind of a mediator, he literally restores her image. You remember the first clip that you saw Leonardo DiCaprio drawing her? He restores her image. He, as it were, 
makes her functional again. And when the job is done, of course, she can go. Because it's also, I didn't want to bore you too much, but it's so interesting to listen to what he is telling her while he is freezing to death. This is not how a lover talks. This is how a preach talks. He gives her this kind of a worldly advice. Be good, be faithful to yourself, and so on and so on. So I claim that that's why Titanic works gives you such a satisfaction. Beneath the appearance of a love story, or at the same level, there is a different story, a very reactionary myth, whose first version is, you know, that Rudyard Kipling's classical child novel, uh, Captain's Courageous. The myth is that the rich people's lives are sterile, aseptic, so from time to time they need a little bit of contact with lower classes who are more instinctual, passionate, and it's a kind of a vampire-like relationship. She restores her ego, sucking all the energy out of him. When the job is done, he can disappear down there. It's a totally different myth. And I'm so sorry we don't have time to go further into it, uh, because uh, what is crucial is that this multi-level approach, that it's, the story is not about what it appears to be. For example, Titanic, Titanic is not simply love story. Beneath the love story is a much more ominous, upper-class, vampiric story. The most beautiful example, but I didn't spend too much, didn't want to spend too much time, the most beautiful example maybe would have been if you uh, uh, saw it, the, the biggest classic, Casablanca. You remember that brief scene just in the middle, two-thirds into the film, where uh, Ingrid Bergman comes to uh, Humphrey Bogart for that visa, passport, whatever, uh, to Portugal, and uh, they talk, then they embrace, fade out, for two seconds and a half you see the tower of the, of the Casablanca airport, and then cut back to them going on talking. Of course, there is a crucial question here. What does those two seconds and a half stand for? Did they do it or not? Sex. What is so interesting, many nice analyses were done of this scene, is that it's not so much ambiguous as simply contradictory. You get three, four unambiguous signs that they did do it. For example, in the standard Hollywood where explicit sex was prohibited, whenever you have a couple passionately embracing and then a fade out, it meant sex. Point two, after we return to them, they smoke. This was also in Hollywood a standard codified way. You know, you know that nice proverb, which is the second and the third nicer thing in the world. The drink before and the cigarette after. So, and then also the kind of a phallic tower of the, so, and then on the other hand, we, we get a whole series of signals that they didn't do it. And I think that's how ideology works in Hollywood. You are not directly told what maybe it happened at this obscene level of sexuality, but it is as if the movie addresses you as a two levels spectator and tells you, I will give you enough signs so that you can claim, pretend that nothing happened. So, no, no, they just talk there, nothing happened, I'm clean. But at the same time, I will give you a whole series of hints as to what might have happened. And since you are covered by the first level, you can indulge, enjoy in all this 
dirty obscenities and so on and so on. <laughs> so let me go on here uh, with uh, how this production of the couple happened. This is really what shocked me, which is why I think if some of film has to be burned publicly, it's this one. Warren Beatty's Reds. Even October Revolution is here basically reduced. Listen, let's go on, please, so that we don't lose time. This is the lad making scene. They, before this scene, the two of them, the couple, Diane Keaton, Warren Beatty, had a love crisis. Now she gives, you see her fascinated gaze, she gives a big revolutionary speech. She is, again, erotically attracted to him, and then you will have the absolute obscenity, the two of them making love against the background, literally, of the October Revolution. Notice even all the details, for example, how metaphorically she lying later on the top of him uh, echoes with the scene on the street where a crowd, a crowd encircles a streetcar, then at the end you will even see the two of them on some big square after the revolution because it's Christmas, with the Christmas tree. So basically, you see, that's what I'm telling you about. Officially, the movies about this John Reed, the American participant, the October Revolution, and so on, problems of communism. Effectively, but the effective function within the emotional economy of the film is, the function is to interpret October Revolution as a means to recreate an American couple. It's at the end, you will get, you will see, a happy couple is created, a little bit of Lenin now, and so on and so on. Uh, okay, I don't want, yeah, let's go on, please. To fill in, it just go on, okay. To, to fill in this time, I want to quickly improvise on something which, for which, unfortunately, we do not have time, namely how this duality, which is, finds its clearest expression in, for example, Casablanca, between the... Are we already... Ah, stop, stop, my God, this is sacred territory, stop, okay, no, let's go on, okay, now you will say, but this holds only for Hollywood, no, it's a little bit more ambiguous, now what I will show you is where my heart is beating faster, it's the greatest Soviet Stalinist war spectacle, you don't even, it's very difficult to get, on DVD, Chiarelli, The Fall of Berlin, from 49. I warn you that these scenes, especially those you see now, were written, co-written by Stalin himself. The actor who plays Stalin was prohibited to play any other roles, because he cannot, he's Stalin, he cannot. Okay, what shocked me so much is how this film perfectly reproduces the Hollywood formula of creation of the couple. Let me briefly introduce it to you, the, the scene. At the beginning we see, just in the summer of 41, an, a, a model worker who is in love with a local teacher or librarian girl, but is afraid to approach her, doesn't know how. As a model worker, he gets a call to visit Stalin because he got that Lenin's medal, whatever. And then this scene was cut out in the Khrushchev era because it was considered too much. In the scenes which is unfortunately cut out, 
Uh, Stalin notices that the guy is nervous and then he asks him, this ordinary worker, tell me, comrade, what is wrong? And the guy confesses to him, listen, comrade Stalin, I'm in love, don't know how to do. And then he's the top of Stalinist pornography. Stalin gives him precise advices, like grab her hand like this, recite to her this poem by Pushkin and so on. They cut this out, but you can check it, you can get the full scenario on, uh, on internet. Then we will cut here direct to the scene where he returns back to the girl, the hero, and of course, my God, if Stalin gives you his advice, it's okay. So, they are officially lovers. He takes her to a field, probably to do certain things with her. But as you will see, at the very moment when they are embraced, something happens. Planes, bombing, it's again this wonderful melodramatic coincidence. At the very moment when the love was to be consummated, you get World War II starts. <laughs> and then the whole film is the guy, of course, she is taken prisoner by the Germans, the guy becomes a, a, a model soldier, and it's as if, again, the, the whole point of the war is to reunite the lovers. In a wonderful, terrifyingly wonderful final scene, you will see Stalin arrives among the crowd and how, be attentive to the looks, exchange of gazes, how the two lovers are united through mediation of Stalin. They look at Stalin, they look where Stalin looks, they see each other, and then in the final scene, uh, the woman, before kissing, they just embrace her lover, walks to Stalin and says, Comrade Stalin, can I give you a kiss, please? <laughs> Stalin himself wrote this scene, remember, as a scenario, and according to some sources in the history of Soviet cinema, when he saw the film, he was crying, of course. He... Okay, please, let's go on. Put more sound, please. Sound? Look, the sacred music. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are, yeah. They present to him the worker, if you don't understand Pasmini, Russian. We need nice to have any of it. Most of us need It's really shocking, especially if you hear this orthodox religious chorus in the background. Here comes, unfortunately, here they censored it. You know why they cut the scene out? I remember. Because in the background you see Beria. And Beria was a non-person in Khrushchev's times. Now they are... Wonderfully, <laughs> this scene will be shot with all the ridiculous theatricals. 
You know why I found this so interesting? Because it gives you a proper approach to the Stalinist universe, in the sense that, do you know that the most popular model films in Soviet Union under Stalin were not, as we would have thought, war ethics or whatever, but so-called Stalinist musicals. In the same way that, for example, in Nazi Germany, in the harshest time, early 40s, it was melodramas and musical or musicals also. We don't have time, but this scene now has, would have to be analyzed in detail the movements, how it is as if the unification shouldn't be direct. She will look now. <laughs> Basically, the message is, let me go away from you so that I can then directly run towards you. You will see. I don't... I didn't <laughs> No, this is the charm of the movies, where there are no coincidences, you know, things happen. For example, now. Exactly now when the love would have been consummated. Okay, now you will see that a little bit of a speech by Stalin, so that we don't lose time. I will go on drawing another attention, uh, sorry, attention to another detail which is crucial. Usually we, yeah, that's, put on voice, please. Music is of course by Shostakovich. So let me go on. You know what makes Stalinism so enigmatic? Usually they say in the West we are manipulated, it's freedom, but it's just an appearance, while Stalinism was a brutal dictatorship. No, Stalinism, in, of course it was a brutal dictatorship, but what makes it so mysterious is, is that it was all the more, how should I put it, sensible to appearances. Appearances had to be kept at all price. What does this mean? One could make a detailed analysis, apropos Stalinism, of a certain feature which always fascinated me in the functioning of ideology. How, for example, when you are a member of a certain closed community, it's not enough to know the rules of that community. You have to know also how to violate the rules. You know what I mean? Like, rules are never simply rules. I mean, I remember from my unfortunate experience in 75-76 in the infamous Yugoslav army, my military service there. What shocked me was that there were rules, but if you did stick to the rules, you were an idiot. The point was to know which rules are meant to be taken, just not literally, so that you can really violate them, or on the contrary, even more interesting, which rules allow you something, but you are not expected to take the opportunity seriously. Like, in our lives even, many of the sexual rules are of the first type. Something is prohibited, but 
between the lines, the message is do it by discreet, but discreetly. No, you are an idiot if you follow prohibition. But in politics, did you notice how? Uh, again, yeah, yeah. So you see, basically, this is the continuation of the scene four years ago that we've seen. So my point is that much more mysterious are those rules and meta rules, higher level rules. Well, something is offered to you. <laughs> Sorry, that's, this is too nice. It's obscene to talk. Right? We have such sublime scenes. I don't know if you noticed in the back, only Stalin imagery is just one very small Lenin, so it was... She asked him if she can kiss him. Don't be afraid, it's a very decent kiss. No, it's again, it's really like almost unbelievable how Soviet cinema at its most Stalinist again follow this idea of great his history as a background only for the, uh, for the creation of the couple. Uh, okay, back to Stalinism. Uh, even in our everyday life, we have many rules like this. For example, I don't know how is it with you in, in Bosnia, but in Slovenia, maybe we have the same rules. Let's say I'm in a competition with my best friend for a job. He gets it. It's considered polite that he asks, tells me, I know you deserved it more, why don't I step down? <laughs> but if I say yes, I break, you know what I mean? He makes an offer, but it's clear that I, that, or if somebody who is more real than you, stop here, yes please, uh, invites you to a restaurant, it's clear that he will pay. But isn't it that at the beginning you have to insist a little bit that you will pay? I think that this is for me a kind of a zero level, not only of ideology, as of social link as such. Okay, let me... Uh, so what makes this situation so mysterious, and here Stalinism is an exemplary case of ideology, is that not only are there things which are prohibited, but the prohibition itself is prohibited, in the sense that what is the sense? Okay, let's just imagine that we are now in Moscow in 37. I'm Stalin, I delivered a speech, then there is debate. Let's say that one of you stands up and attacks me. This will not end good. The next day people will ask who saw you the last time. But let's <laughs> say that something else happens, that another one of you stands up then and attacks the first guy. Like, are you crazy? Don't you know that we don't criticize Comrade Stalin here? How dare you talk like that? I claim the second guy will be arrested even faster. That is to say, it wasn't only that it was forbidden to criticize Stalin. It was also forbidden to publicly announce this criticism as such. You know, you have to pretend that I could have, but I don't. It has to be this structure of you can, just that, you know, to, to be given a freedom which you never really use. Okay, nonetheless, let's go to my main topic. The last example of this uh, love uh, love catastrophe and so on are big catastrophe movies. Uh, maybe you saw Deep Impact, which is again a story about asteroid threatening the whole Earth. Following my formula, it's really a story about incestuous tension. Thea Leoni plays a young journalist who is furious at her father because her father divorced her mother and married a young girl who is the same age as herself. So it's clear that this 
fury of threatening the whole earth is a kind of materialization of her disappointment and so on. Uh, how can we analyze this? The final scene towards the end, not quite final, of the film is a gigantic, uh, uh, a gigantic uh, asteroid hits the ocean and then a gigantic wave comes to the coast where the girl is united with her father. It's truly a love scene. And when the gigantic wave is approaching, she embraces him. She says, oh, daddy, and so on. Oh, they are dead. My idea is to read this scene together with this well-known sexually explicit scene, relatively, okay, from, yes, this is from here to eternity. You know, illicit love, you get a little bit of gentle weight. This is normal promiscuity. My God is when you have incestuous tension, the love is, sorry, the, the wave is slightly bigger. No, I tell you this is strict like as if these waves materialize their passion, just an ordinary. Here you will see the other scene. Oh yeah, put a little bit of sound, please. But now we move to slightly higher theory. But what I wanted to show you here is uh, how, obviously, again, we are dealing with, again, two levels. We have the official narrative focused on the big catastrophe and so on. But I claim that this incestuous or whatever love tension, love story, it's apparently marginal. But it's the echoing between the official story, natural catastrophe or whatever, war, and this 
incestuous or whatever libidinal tension which gives to the film its depth. Not depth in the sense of deep art, but depth in the sense of libidinal resonance. So let me now more directly approach how this tension functions between the two levels. There is a film, one of the half-forgotten masterpieces of Hollywood, which uh, does this, yes, much more uh, directly. It's a wonderful film by half-forgotten, again from 90, uh, sorry, from 89, by John Carpenter, They Live. Let me just explain the situation. It's a kind of a paranoiac science fiction, an ordinary guy, the hero, homeless, walks into an abandoned church in the shanty town suburbs of uh, Los Angeles and finds there a box with strange sunglasses. And when he puts the sunglasses on, he, as it were, sees directly the truth. Okay, the truth is that we are already uh, controlled by aliens and so on. But what makes it more interesting is that he sees the true message behind publicity. Or, for example, as you will see, he sees... Uh, big poster publicity for, I don't know, some product or uh, some uh, uh, trip tourism. And then when he puts glasses on, he sees what it really says. Don't think, obey, marry, reproduce, and so on. Please. Let's go on to the end of this clip, nonetheless, I don't want to lose time, it's just you know, the repetition of the same. What I want to tell you is that, uh, of course, this is a ridiculous, paranoiac version, but isn't it something like this is effectively going on without any, parano without any paranoiac scenarios of aliens who control us and so on? Isn't it that when you see uh, publicity, there is an underlying clear message, obey or whatever. It's inscribed into its very form. But what is more interesting is that the way we have it here, it's, I would say, today's consumerist hedonist ideology, where apparently you are just called to enjoy, to have a good time and so on, and the true message of social control, obey, don't think, remain asleep and so on, is as it were, hidden at the other level. We should not forget that we also have the opposite procedure, which is that, and this is more how traditional ideology functions, which is that you get the explicit ideological message, but if you were, as it were, to put these ideological glasses on, you would have seen the obscene pleasure that ideology is giving you. For example, let's imagine we are in the United States in the early 1920s, a small town with Ku Klux Klan. The explicit message there of ideology would have been, I don't know, 
be a good Christian, fight for Western culture, and so on and so on. You put the glasses on and you would have read, and if you do this every weekend, we can go and rape some black girls and lynch some black guys and so on and so on, or with Nazism again. Why, uh, for example, officially, sacrifice yourself for Germany, for your country, enough exploitation, you put the glasses on, we can rob, we can kill some Jews and so on and so on. Why am I saying this? I don't have, again, time to go into it in detail. Because precisely with regard to the tragic experience that we, or rather you, much more than I, being from Slovenia, I was more lucky, had here, namely with regard to the horrors of the war here, the horrors of ethnic cleansing and so on. What people usually miss when we are dealing with so-called fundamentalist, nationalistic, religious ideologies is <coughs> sorry, they all too much follow the ideological cliché of reading fundamentalists as people who are afraid, as it were, of postmodern freedoms and escape into the coordinates of all fixed universe. Like the idea being that people are terrified. Today you can do whatever you want, homosexuality, whatever, and this is horrible, where are the old values? So, too many freedoms, we want security, firm values. But I claim, effectively, it doesn't work at all like this. This is the surface. Like, too much enjoyment, we need all values, we need to drop hedonism, you need to sacrifice yourself for your nation, religion, whatever. But I claim that the way effectively fundamentalisms function is that, again, if you put the glasses on, you get the opposite message. Like, to be very brutal, in this case, forget about uh, Western liberal hedonism, become a fighter for your nation, and then you put glasses on, and you can then rape, kill, burn, and so on and so on. It's a as it were, promise of false liberation. And every fundamentalism, I claim, functions like this. Let me now do something to see how the guy was aware of it. Sorry to do this obscenity, but let me just quote a couple just of lines from, again, I'm sorry, but they are crucial, for a poem by Radovan Karadzic. Poem. Convert to my new faith crowd. I offer you what no one has had before. I offer you inclemency and wine. The one who won't have bread will be fed by the light of my son. Now, people, nothing is forbidden in my faith. There is loving and drinking and looking at the sun for as long as you want, and this Godhead forbids you nothing. Oh, obey my call, brethren, people, crowd, and so on, and so on. I mean, this is how totalitarianism functions, you know, officially, or let's say Hitler, again, officially it is enough of Weimar decadence, order, sacrifice, the country needs you, but the message when you put the glasses on is nothing is forbidden, which is why, again, this is so crucial to grasp against this stupid Western patronizing attitude that the so-called uh, ethnic fundamentalists are some kind of stupid people who are afraid of insecurity. Once in Milosevic's era, I had illegally visited so-so Belgrade and was unfortunate to speak with one of these hardliners. 
ethnic. And he gave me the lesson of my lifetime. He told me, no, he told me, for me, your, he told me, your Western developed society is too regulated. He told me, you cannot drink, you have to take care of political correctness, you cannot beat a woman, you cannot drink, you cannot this, you cannot that. He told me, my God, you become a nationalist and everything you do, you do it for your nation, so it's freedom, rape, kill, rob, and so on and so on. So it's absolutely crucial, again, to be aware of this, how should I call it, uh, false permissivity of how the message beneath the surface of so-called uh, fundamentalisms is exactly the opposite one of what the opposite one uh, of what it may appear. What does this mean? Now let's go a step further. Does this mean that that we should be, how should I call it, distrustful towards enjoyment as such? That you know, enjoyment is the way ideology manipulates with us. No, the situation is here much more. Okay, not so much complex as complicated. It moves at two levels. That is to say, let me be now very open. Let, uh, I remember from the old ex-Yugoslavia, whenever I met people from other republics, the first thing we did where we started to tell dirty, obscene ethnic jokes to each other. I don't think this was racism. I think this was... First, because usually these jokes were not jokes against each other, but more like, I don't know, I told them the joke about us, Slovi you know how it was, no, you don't know, some of you are young in ex-Yugoslavia, each ethnic, each nation was identified with certain cliches. We Slovenes were, uh, how do you call it, misers, we don't want to spend money, Montenegro were lazy, you Bosnians, I think, were a kind of a cunning, sexually obsessed. Like, okay, I will not bore you with stories about yourselves, which I love, like, you know, the one of the boy at Beethoven class who said, fear for Eliza, and then, and so on. I mean, I just, so what I'm saying is that, you know, this is the problem of political correctness for me, that it may appear racist, but this was more a kind of a true solidarity, in the sense of, when I visit you, what does a proper liberal, liberal racist do? He tells you something like, oh, you have interesting folkloric dances, show me your customs, and so on. That's boring, no? I mean, when you tell me a dirty joke, you know, there must be an exchange of obscenities, as it were, which makes it a contact. I remember from the, for example, I remember, it happened to me, my God, from my stay, it was 75, 76, in Yugoslav army. There was an Albanian soldier there, very dignified, nice man, and we were friendly, but we wanted to become like real friends. And there was only one way through obscenity. And I remember how this happened. It was unbelievable. One morning, instead of, when we met, instead of saying me, Good morning, he told me, uh, uh, I screw your mother. I knew what this was. This was just a call for me to return a kind of symmetrical insult. Believe me, I didn't have any problem. I immediately answered, uh, Go on after I finish with your sister. Then we embraced, we were friends. And that's now the beauty. We, we never again mentioned this 
All that happened is that every morning after, instead of saying goodbye, but we didn't laugh, it wasn't even a joke, it was just a reminder that we were really friends. She, instead of saying good morning, she told me, mother, I said, sister, mother, sister, without any smile. It was just, it strictly meant we are still real friends. You cannot do it. This is what the politically correct Westerners who come here and teach you all those rules. I mean, wait a minute. Political correctness does have its point. That is to say, there are, of course, two limitations of this example. First, it's obviously a male chauvinist one. That is to say, let's not forget, it's about men exchanging, offering to each other women. No? So, as a good feminist, I would like to live in a society where the same would have gone for women. Two women met, no? One, one says, I screw your son, the other said, go on after I finish your, 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 your husband or whatever. No, like, at least you have sympathy. Second one, it only worked because we were both ordinary soldiers. Like, if I were to be an officer, no? I, I don't think any soldier would come to me and tell me I screw your mother or what, no? But, what I'm just saying is the, this is one aspect of obscenity, that it's only through this exchange of obscenities that you have what one may naively call a true contact to a person as a person. On the other hand, we all know, unfortunately, to what extent obscenities also function in racism in brutal violence and so on and so on for, for example i don't know just do you know american so-called mar so-called marching chants songs marines sing when they are on maneuvers and so on and they are also full of this kind of nonsense rhymes and obscenities for example i don't know if you saw the richard gear film uh, officer and gentleman where the song is something like i don't know but i was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold and so on. It's pure, and you see what's my point here? It's that uh, it's not any kind of uh, resistance, protest against military discipline. Military discipline itself needs this kind of obscenity to sustain itself. This is what fascinated me in, when I was serving the army. How I learned that all these obscenities were part of the game part of military community. There was nothing subversive about them. For example, my unit is probably, all of the army was extremely homophobic. If somebody was suspected to be gay, he was beaten every night. You know, the standard soldier's punishment. One holds a cover over his head and the others beat him with their, beat him with whatever ropes or whatever. But at the same time, our daily life was absolutely penetrated by homosexual innuendos. For example, in my unit, we didn't say in the morning, if, if I greet another soldier, usually it was not to say good morning. It was to say, uh, 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 me, me, which means smoke my prick, which means kind of a invitation. It was totally neutral. All, all, you see this paradox, how it wasn't simply homophobic. The true enigma is why the explicit homophobia had to be supplemented by all this explosive obscenity. So again, we should here bear in mind the upper, the utmost ambiguity of the role of obscenity. At the same time, it serves power, 
at the same time, it can play a positive role, which is why one shouldn't make here mistakes. What kind of mistakes? Ah, let me go on and show you a movie which I almost hate more than rats. The famous is yes, this one from Bob Fosse's Cabaret. You know when the two heroes, please go on and put the sound on. They were impressed, but like now I understood how fascism grasped the people. Why was Hitler such a success, and so on and so on. But I think that, uh, well, I will be very provocative here. I think that there is absolutely nothing fascist outside the system, uh, sorry, outside the swastika, the science in all of this 
sing. Imagine something. Imagine exactly the same song, maybe with a word or two changed. Imagine instead of swastika, a red star. Tomorrow belongs to me, red star, communism will win, and so on. And I would totally accept it. What is wrong? And this is liberal ideology at its worst. You remember when the two guys then leave in the car, one says to the other, to the rich, decadent German, and you think you can still dominate them, and so on, and so on. Uh, let's, there is, of course, the de fascist danger, but let's not leave to the enemy the terrain. Are we aware that all, practically all the features which liberals identify as proto-fascists were taken, taken by the fascists from the left, from the communist uh, meetings and so on and so on. All this, this, I think we should radically stop this false identification as if, if you say discipline, sacrifice or whatever, you are automatically proto-fascist. No. All, everything here can be recuperated. And the falsity of this scene is precisely that it leaves too much to the enemy. No. I mean, we should act like this. We should have songs like this, better songs, and so on. It's totally false to, pro to project into this. So, so, again, ideology is not in elements as such, which is why I will go to the end if we are with cinema. Uh, I radically disagree with famous Susan Zontag's analysis of Leni Riefenstahl, where her thesis is to look for the traces of her proto-Nazism already in her earlier Bergfilme, mountain films, and later in her films about Africa and so on and so on. I think this is totally not the case. Let's look at her last pre-Nazi film, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the mountain light, uh, whatever. Oh, which, my God, do you know that the scenario for that film was co-written by her lover at that time, Bela Balsh, who was a Jew and a communist. And the film, which tells a story about an isolated girl who is kind of a cursed uh, exile in a small closed village, can almost be read. Many of my Jewish friends read it as a kind of a metaphor of the Jews excluded by the community and so on and so on. So again, don't be afraid, don't leave to the enemy too much. So how, what can we do here? Okay, I will try to give you an example of how critique can take from the enemy or undermine these pleasures. Uh, rock, hard rock, punk, however you call it, band. I don't want to take Slovene, Leibach, I've written enough of them. Rather, I took, I will take the German one, Rammstein. I, you know where you can I immediately identify the liberal temptation. They like to say, okay, all this playing with totalitarian symbols is ironic, but are we sure that some young people will not be too naive and instead of seeing the irony, they will really identify by it and like take it as a neo-Nazi spectacle. I think this is a totally false fear. Why? Because it misses what Rammstein are doing. What are they doing? Let me give you an example of similar things. I remember way back when Jörg Haider, the Austrian populist, was beginning his famous career. He organized in Carinthia, Kern, the southern Austrian province, north of Slovenia, 
uh, a big uh, campaign against the alleged Slovene threat. The formula was Kärnten bleibt Deutsch. Carinthia should will remain remains German. What did Austrian leftists do? They bought space in big newspapers and instead of instead of to put it instead of uh, any critique detail of this formula, they did something very simple. Sorry, they reproduced the official motto Kärnten bleibt Deutsch. And then what they did is simply to add to it obscene variations, like Kärnten bleibt Deutsch, and then Kärnten bleibt Bleutsch, Kärnten leibt Beutsch, Kärnten bleibt Bleutsch, and so on. The effect was so obscene. Why? Because it is as if the official motto was extracted from its ideological context and shown in its dirty obscenity. You know who did the same already in 39 or when? Chaplin, in his true masterpiece, I claim, The Great Dictator. You remember the famous scene where Hinkle Hitler gives a speech in some totally obscene language where all we recognize is from time to time a vulgar German word like Wiener Schnitzel, Apfelstrudel, or whatever. <laughs> and I think that this exactly is what Rammstein are doing. They are not, they are doing exactly the opposite of the official liberal critique which we see, no, this obscene enjoyment, you must resist it, uh, uh, totalitarian, no, they give us this obscene foundation, this all tics, uh, gestures, at its purest, they bring outside their ideological context and I think the effect of alienation in the Freudian sense of extranation, verfremdung, is even stronger, so please now, just that short clip from Rammstein. Put the voice as much as you can deserve Again, I think you have nothing to fear to fully identify with it. You will not be a neo-Nazi. You will definitely not be. No, the point is that it's there well worth looking at Hitler's speeches. He was, of course, playing with all this hysteria, but like, not directly. You just have to push it a little bit further and Hitler becomes ridiculous. And that's what they are doing here. It's much more effective than, than, uh, than criticizing it from the outside. Okay, you can stop this one. Now, let me go on. So, What's my point here? My point is that where is ideology? I just tried, as you saw it, to complicate the issues. Ideology is not where it appears to be. Ideology is not in the explicit message. Ideology is explicit message, but the explicit message itself would have been ridiculous propaganda, counterproductive. You have to supplement, like ideology, Soviet propaganda. 
Yeah, but you need a love story, a couple. You need something, some background, the second level to sustain it. This can even be, and this is the worst ideology today, it is most disgusting for me, the so-called uh, humanization. What do I mean by this? Uh, did you notice how it makes me very depressed, how this big hero film, Spider-Man, Batman, and so on, uh, more and more, and some people even think that for this maybe they are more artistic, you know, more and more they show us the hero with, as they put it, the last movie shows Batman also with his weaknesses, with his traumas, he's not just a flat hero and so on. But this, this, human, this humanization, this I'm also a human being, is exactly, it's there that ideology enters. Ideology is effective, it needs this human touch. Which is why when an American publisher who wants to reprint a book of mine, I resisted this how. They wanted me to add, you know, on the last page of the book, you have the official uh, representation of the writer, and then they like you to add two, three human touch details, like, you know. In his free time, Professor Blah Blah also likes to grow tulips and play with dogs or whatever. <laughs> and I wanted to shock them. I said, okay, do it by telling them in his free time, uh, Professor Zizek uh, serves uh, uh, serves internet for child pornography and teaches his son how to pull legs out of living spiders or what, no? I mean, of course I'm not doing that. The point is just to show the falsity. This, this human touch is ideology. And I found a wonderful, totally ridiculous example from the greatest country living, North Korea. I read there that now they opened a new golf course for South Korean tourists, no? And of course, the first one to play was, uh, was Kim Jong-il. And there is, this is an 18, one eight, 18 holes golf course. You know how many hits he needed to fill them all? That's the touch, not 18, 19. So I can imagine a bureaucrat who says, no, 18, nobody would believe us, no? To make it human, let's, let's add one, no? So that, yeah. This is, and if you want a, an example much closer to us, for example, uh, uh, when I visited Israel, they are intelligent here, I met some officers and they showed me how the Israeli army got this. Their entire propaganda is not we Israeli are perfect soldiers and so on, it's total humanization. They again and again emphasize our soldiers are weak, they have doubts. They are afraid, uh, you know, like to make them human. But I think this is the greatest mystification in a way. Then, then you know, I'm human can be an excuse for everything you want. Like, in this sense, the greatest human being was Joseph Fritzl, you know. I think he was even more human than Karadzic, probably, no. Why? Because uh, it's precisely this, how should I put it, this apparent distance towards ideology, which makes which makes ideology, uh, which makes ideology effective. So, slowly, another ten minutes, if you allow me to conclude. Uh, how does then ideology function? Forget about big ideology. What interests me is ideology, ideological attitudes, whole system of racism and so on, embedded in everyday practices. How we dress, how we react the code of discretion, what can be said, what cannot be said. For example, recently I was with my friend Mladen Dolar, another Slovene 
Lacanian, Hegelian philosopher, in the United States, and a strange thing happened to us. We were at a dinner, and with some professors, we didn't know each other well, so a big professor who presided over dinner uh, told us, you know what, uh, let's present, each, each should present, him or herself, and the professor said, please state your post, where you are employed, the field of your work, and your sexual orientation. I mean, slightly like, what business is this of you, no? So I was tempted to do as a Marxist, but didn't, I wanted just to add, okay, and your, your salary after taxes and your private property, if you have any fortune, <laughs> no? Because that would have been much more, no? But it's not simply that Americans are more indiscreet. At the same time, it happened to me and Vladimir Dollar, an American was visiting us, friend, and we went to the Adriatic coast, it was summer, and this American was totally shocked when he saw their topless, with breasts displayed women. This was for them to, uh, to obscene. So you see how different codes we have. At this level, at this level, ideology interests me. At this level, you can find ideology, ideological prohibitions, even in what appears to be the most, uh, super, the most uh, vulgar or permissive films. For example, uh, hardcore porno. It may appear, my God, what can be more open? You can do whatever, you can do everything. Yes, but you pay a price. Which is the price? In old classical, when I was young, hardcore porno, one feature always did strike me. And today I claim it's even worse. It was, you know, if it's a full feature, hardcore porno, you cannot have just sex all the time. There has to be a minimal story that introduces it. And how utterly stupid, ridiculous this story always is. It tries to be funny in a painful way, and I claim that they cannot be so stupid. There is a message in it. For example, even I, now I'm traumatized. I remember when I was young, seeing one where the story was the plumberer comes, the housewife is alone, the plumberer fixes the hole which was leaking in the bathroom, and then the wife said, but I have another hole, can you also fix that hole? Or you are so embarrassed. I think the message is what? It's, if you show everything sex, then it mu must not be, how should I call it naively, emotionally identifying. It must be that you, it's signaled all the time that there is a distance of the ridicule. You cannot have it both. Which is why today the most popular hardcore porno, I was told, is uh, are so-called gonzo. Gonzo means you even don't have a story, but actors directly interact with cameraman and so on, you know, make remarks, do I look good now, does this good look, to destroy even at its minimum the illusion. I think this is a very nice example of how even in a genre where apparently everything is prohibited, you have rules. So what are the lessons of what I was saying today? There are two. The first lesson is Forget about all those stories, how we don't believe today, we live in uh, permissive societies, and so on and so on. Of course, we don't believe directly, but we practice beliefs. Today, I claim we live in a cynical era, which means we pretend not to believe, but we simply act as if we believe. Uh, maybe you know the story, the, the, the great guy from Copenhagen, quantum physics, uh, Niels Bohr. There is a wonderful anecdote about Niels Bohr, who went to, uh, he was once visited in a countryside where he had a small farmer's dacha, like house,
by a friend, and the friend saw above the entrance to the house horseshoe. You know that superstitious, oh, superstitious item, the idea is it prevents evil spirits entering the house. And the surprised friend asked Niels Bohr, my God, listen, you're a scientist, do you believe in this, that this works as a magic object? Niels Bohr said, of course I don't believe it, I'm a scientist. Then the friend asked him, but why do you have it there if you don't believe in it? Niels Bohr answered, I have it there because I was told that even if you don't believe it, it, in it, it still works. That's how we function today. You don't have to believe in democracy and so on, but you act as if, you act as if it still works. And you know, that's the, that's the problem we are learning today, that, how to put it, appearances, appearances have an autonomy of their own. You, you can be cynical or whatever, but things function. You don't have to believe you as a person for a belief to directly, to directly function. Second thing I want to say is that now all I was doing till now was more or less uh, simple films, uh, just to give you some ideas about ideology. How then, what would we then, let me think in the last five minutes, just give you a brief thing on what would then uh, something like real art be? Because I still think that cinema is an authentic, great art. Uh, I think that we also have some kind of duality, two levels, but in the sense that in a true film, true, true work of art, the, it's, I wouldn't say philosophy, it's too bombastic word, it's basic, how should I call it, relation to world, how we relate to world, should be inscribed into its very form. And there should be an implicit tension between content and form. What do I mean by this? Let me give you two examples with which I will conclude. The first one, unfortunately, I don't have a clip. One of, for me at least, masterpieces of Hollywood in the last decades. Uh, it's, of course, uh, Robert Altman. I hope you saw it. Shortcuts. At the level of content, you can say, and many leftists interpreted the film in this way, this is uh, kind of a leftist critique of the alienation of American suburbia, middle classes, their alienated, desperate lives, whatever. It's true, you can read it in this way. But I claim the beauty of the film is that it's, how should I call it, the ontology, the view of reality, inscribed into the very form of the film, is a different one. You remember how it is done, a combination of Raymond Carver stories, you have eight, nine narrative lines intersecting in a totally contingent way, and then the results are totally open. It can be a catastrophe, a boy is dying. It can be a new friendship or whatever. So I claim that this basic life texture given by the film, it's a different one, it's a kind of a ontology which reminds one of, you know, the French guy Gilles Deleuze, a kind of a open, kind of a neo-Spinozian, open pluralist ontology where without any teleology, preordained control, it's you kind of a, you have a multitude with contingent interactions. It's basically a film about how sense, or rather, to be more precise, meaning, meaning arises out of nonsense, out of nonsensical encounters. So it's, you see my point, which is why it's this, without this, you, you got now my point, without this, 
how should I call it, world feeling, world atmosphere, however you call it, attitude towards reality, however you call it, inscribed into the very form of the film. If you take this away, it, it would have been just a boring uh, social critical film when you say, okay, so what, and so on. It's precisely, the beauty is that it is a critical film, but the optimism is not inscribed you don't need, at the end, a hero to tell you, yes, but things are not so bad, there is hope or what. Hope is inscribed into the very form of how the pessimistic diagnostic about reality is rendered there. That would be, for me, the, the crucial point. Or, to give you my another final example, please don't yet show it, because I would forget, Alfred Hitchcock. There, I claim you have entire theological dimension inscribed into the very forum. What is one of Hitchcock's typical standard procedures? That when the subject is approaching a potentially threatening object, house, whatever, first it's shot in a standard way. Exchange of subjective point of view shot and objective shot. Then at a certain point, regularly in Hitchcock, something happens. The camera moves up so that you get the so-called God's point of view shot, where you see from above the whole scene, and then from here you jump into something very mysterious, which is specifically Hitchcockian. A point of view shot, but the point of view of an impossible subject. You don't know who he is, he's unthinkable. It is as if God, that anonymous neutral God, gets subjectivized as kind of an evil presence. And it's Okay, let's see this one. This is the second murder, please. From please play it now. This is. You see, this is still normal, as it were. Any guy can do this. I mean, would have done it. Objective shot. No, this objective were already from down there before. Okay. Here, subjective. I mean, point of view shot, although it's not here. Now, this, now, point of God's view, impossible subject. Uh, I didn't want to take too much of your time, but just, if you don't believe me that this is, sorry, stop, it's over. If you don't believe me that this is a formula, check, for example, in Hitchcock's The Birds, the scene where you see the town on fire. First you have uh, Melanie, Tipihedren, observing a gas station, burning the same exchange, subjective, objective. Then God's view shot of the whole city burning, and then all of a sudden, birds from behind enter the frame, objective shot is subjectivized. Again, so this idea, you know that, of, you don't have to call it God, big other as a neutrality, neutral overview, that this very neutral frame, frame of reality can get subjectivized in an evil way, how the very objectivity is sustained by an evil, evil divinity, however you want it. Uh, this, this is what makes Hitchcock Hitchcock. This, uh, how should I put it, sensitivity or however you call it, rendered, rendered by the rendered by the formal apparatus itself. Which is why, for example, who is for me a great feminist author? John Cassavetes. Because in his 
masterpieces, faces and so on, where it's usually his wife, Gina Rowland, okay, he's dead now, so his ex-wife, uh, where she's, uh, what does he do? Usually she's shot when she has hysterical outbursts, so that camera gets too close to her face and it's shaking. So what is basically a beautiful woman's face? When you get too close, you see all the distortions, as if, you get my point, as if hysteria is not only a hysteria of the woman whom you see there, but as if the camera itself is infected by the, sorry, by the hysteria which is depicted there. The absolute contrast to this would have been for me, and I have great problems with him, for example, Tarkovsky. If you saw his nostalgia, there also, the woman, the Italian friend of that Russian, whatever, poet who is roaming around Italy looking for some traces of another Russian poet, has an outburst. But I think it's the most, the most, uh, the most, uh, I haven't seen a shot with so much hatred towards a feminine subject. Because while she's exploding, showing her breast, shouting, the camera just remains totally firm at the distance. You see, as it were, hatred in the camera itself. So here, where cinema as an art truly begins, at least for me, at this level of, uh, how should I call it, <laughs> some, I don't want to call it, it's a wrong metaphysical term, worldview, but let's say attitude to reality, implicit ontology, in, which is inscribed into the very form, and then how this interacts with the story, how they supplement each other and so on and so on. This is for me where one has to look for true art today, which is why, for example, I'm ready to say about another of my directors whom as persons, he's, I think, rather stupid, uh, David Lynch, but he has an incredible ideologically well, I don't appreciate him very much, he's into this new age uh, meditation madness, but as a cinema maker, as to sensitivity of the form, he is incredible. I think that movie also, let me make another note, movie as an art begins, I think, when you do with images also what, what is done with the cat, you remember, the uh, Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland, how the smile cat disappears, only an object, the smile uh, remains. This is what, for example, Lynch knows how to play wonderfully. You remember in Mulholland Drive, that famous scene where, okay, we learn later it was playback, but the effect is shocking. Uh, in a nightclub, a woman is singing, she collapses, the singing goes on. For a brief moment, you're almost afraid, my God, does a voice survive of, on its own? There is also a wonderful scene, even in such an easy film, easy in the sense of apparently formal easy, the last Sergio Leone, you saw it once upon a time in America, where towards the beginning of the film, we see a phone ringing, ringing endlessly, then finally a hand picks up the phone, the ringing goes on. And you know, this, how to put it, disintegration of reality into its different components. It's not simply that uh, the, it's not simply that words, that sound belongs to bodies. This is how 
in the very texture of the film, you can get another message, which is why I'm sorry I couldn't show you more from, you just said the beginning from, for example, this is why Eisenstein is great in Ivan the Terrible. This is why Chaplin is great in The Great Dictator, where, you know what's the idea of Great Dictator? Twin, two of them, parallel destinies. Kinkel, Hitler, dictator, played both by Chaplin and the poor Jewish barber. But it's crucial how, it's not only that one is good, the other is bad, but they directly relate to physical reality of the film. Hinkle is, sorry, the Jewish barber is basically the continuation of the trend. He's mostly silent, just dances around, etc. While Hinkle, Hitler, is in a way the primacy of the voice. We first hear his voice, then we see his distorted space and so on, but he's always overshadowed by the voice. Here, I think Chaplin was a genius because he was right to resist sound, not because of some conservative stupidity like, uh, no, I want silent movie, but he saw in the sound a threatening dimension where the usual realists saw only new possibilities. Oh my God, we have now sound, we can show people talking like in real life. But Chaplin, and not only Chaplin, Fritz Lang and others, sense this how the moment you have sound film cinema sound becomes a spectral entity which can somehow autonomize itself you no longer control your own voice we in a way all become like vent ventriloquists and so on and so on so unfortunately at this point where we would have approached a serious analysis i have to stop that's life thank you very much for your patience Communist, I will tell you, don't applaud too much. When we will take over again, you will be obliged to do it. Spare <laughs> your energy for that moment. <laughs> no, but seriously, I will repeat an old joke here, which you probably know, but it always fascinates me when I hear this. Did you notice this wonderful small detail? If you, I've written about this. Oh, if you watch old documentaries, the difference between fascism and Stalinism, no? In a fascism, when the leader is applauded, he just receives the applause. In Stalinism, always, the leader joins the applause. That's, I think, in minimum the difference. Because the subjectivity is totally different. In fascism, you are a leader. Stalinist leader always legitimizes himself as a servant of the people. I'm anonymous, I'm nobody, I'm just... Which is why I can join you in the applause and so on. Okay, now I leave. Okay. <laughs> that's the tragedy of Stalinism, which this brings us to the second point. For example, no, I'm saying this as a reaction to those simplists who claim, oh, Stalinism, fascism, the same. No, unfortunately, they are not the same. I'm not saying Stalinism is better, just that the whole economy is different. For example, do you know that under Stalinism, I read in a book on Gulag, every year on Stalin's birthday, even in the darkest gulag, Kolima, Magadan, all the prisoners were assembled and they all had to sign a telegram to Stalin wishing him all the best and success and so on. You cannot even imagine this like 
in Nazi Germany was to collect all the Jews to sign a telegram with Hitler. It's why? Precisely because the subjectivity is totally different. In Stalinism, you have show trials, confessions. In Nazism, you don't have them. I mean, because in Nazism, first I put it, you are guilty just for being what you are, a Jew. They don't have to demonstrate any Jewish plot or what. So it's very paradoxical. The paradoxical is Stalinism was, in some respects, more horrible, precisely because it was, ironically, closer to enlightenment. You know, the Stalinist idea is that even the lowest Trotsky sheet is still has the access to universal reason. You can confess, you can see where you went wrong. In Nazism, you don't have this. So, okay, all I'm trying to say is that um, I think that we are far from understanding 20th century still. I don't believe those who think this was an aberration, now we have happy liberalism and so on and so on. No, we don't. And it would be especially crucial to understand the 20th century to understand where we are going now. Because I'm a, how should I call it, moderate pessimist. I, and you saw it. Now I will refer to your city, Sarajevo. You know what made me, horrified me already at that unfortunate epoch, 92? How, you know, Henri Bertson, the French guy, you know, had some wonderful observation about time that he made apropos First World War. When he started with uh, uh, how, before World War I, basically people knew it is coming, you know, from the tent. But nonetheless, somehow they didn't believe it can really happen. They secretly thought it's not possible. But then what showed him is that when the catastrophe did take place, how quickly they got accustomed to it. All of a sudden, okay, it's war, you know. And what shocked me so much that something similar happened with you here, you know, nobody really believed. Everybody knew the war is in the air. Nobody really believed something like the siege of Sarajevo can happen. But the shock is how? When it happened, how? Oh, not you, you were here, like being screwed, that's more difficult. But the enlightened public, how they got, how quickly, okay, they were outraged, but they were outraged in a normal way. You know, it became part of the background. It's just something that was unthinkable, all of a sudden becomes acceptable. And here we can use again these spectacles from uh, they leave. This is what I find so false in today's charity. You know, when they call you, like, you know, give five dollars a month and you will save a child in Africa or whatever. I ask myself, what would you see if you were to put on the same glasses? I think you would have seen something like Pay a little bit and then you can forget about it. And we guarantee you that, you know, basically, I claim we pay charity so that they remain there, no? Like, not come too clear, as I put it, no? Charity is, I think, that at its most fundamental, charity is a kind of a superstitious activity to guarantee that they don't bother you, no? Like, pay a little bit and they remain there, no? And we all like to, they like to sympathize with Sarajevo and so on, no? But the moment I noticed you started to move too much, it was, hey, what if Osama bin Laden is here, what is, you know, West, the West likes suffering victims, likes to help them and so on. If victims organize themselves too much, you are at least suspected of being a fundamentalist or something <laughs> like that, no? So, 
You know how this goes, no? Castro put it better than me, maybe. Sorry for this, again, interruption. Now we have a little bit of time to pretend that we live in democracy, no? So that you can ask questions. Maybe to put the lights on, also maybe to put the lights on it, so, yeah. Or if you can speak loudly enough, or whatever, I mean, it could be good, yeah? And the, the light, yeah. Not on me, on you, on you, I want you. No, this was just the case of that specific, uh, this is Spielberg's ideology. What I'm only saying is that ideology is never the explicit ideology, that you have to look for this supplement, which appears just a marginal element that without this official ideology, which can be patriotism or whatever, wouldn't have worked. That's, that was only my thesis that, you know, it doesn't stand on its own. Even, for example, the Stalinist epic has to have this last, last story or whatever. Th that was only, no, it's not necessarily patriarchy. On the contrary, many people criticize me today for claiming that today I claim patriarchy is effectively, and Spielberg is here rather old-fashioned. I don't think we still live in patriarchal universe. I mean, I'm not saying we have some new freedom, but who says that after patriarchalism there should be, there should be, there should be freedom? And you know, even already Adorno knew this when he emphasized in late 30s that Hitler is not totalitarian fascist leader, is not a patriarchal figure. So uh, I, I think that when some feminists today still behave as if the enemy is still patriarchal authority, no? I think where it is, it is more a reaction. But I think in the very way patriarchal authority reasserts itself, it undermines itself. In the sense that even when you pretend to be patriarchal authority today, in the moment you do it, you already undermine it. If there is a patriarchal authority today, it's rather something much more ominous. It's a return of the figure called by Freud Urfather, primordial father. You know, this brutal, not the symbolic father who upholds the symbolic law, but the brutal father, violent, who wants to possess all the women. This is why what I find, okay, it's obscene with all the suffering to say interesting, but okay, interesting in the figure of Josef Fritz. Josef Fritz is Freudian Urfather, possessing all the women in the basement down there and so on. And if you look, a link with Hollywood, it would have been Sound of Music, I claim. I think the Sound of Music is a very dangerous myth of this kind of a enclosed patriarchal... Okay, but that's another story. Let me not go too far. Okay. <laughs> but let's also be democratic. Okay. Uh, 
Okay, in principle, I would say it doesn't matter, but I think it's... Uh, okay, now I will be talking like the Chinese diplomats, you know, they always like to quantify, you know, like they tell, you ask them, how is Mao? They say Mao was 70% good, 30% bad, you know, and then when it's getting a little bit worse, they say now Mao is only 25% and so on, no? But so I would say 70% no. It must be somehow already in the machine. What just did strike me is how systematically this goes through. Not all, but those were a failure. For example, one of the few truly interesting films of him for me was the, big, the relatively big flop, Artificial Intelligence, which I think is a different fantasy. There you don't have that, and it's much more interesting. But maybe precisely because there was not this background, people were lost in a way. They, they, they didn't know what to do with the film. No? But I don't, how should I put it, uh, it's not, I don't think Spielberg is a fake because it's so successful, how should I put it, no? I don't have anything against him at this level. I just think that uh, even at the level of commercial films, if you want, there are simply much better films. For example, I met the guy by chance, I like him. Let's go to lower commercial films. Did you see Guillermo del Toro Blade? Blade number two, that black guy, you know, the half vampire and so on. It's wonderfully shot in Prague, post-socialist, with all wonderful use to provide density of this literally post-industrial societies, not in the sense of post-modern, but in the sense of still industrial, but empty factories in decay and so on. For example, that's art for me. That's much more art than many art films. Like, for example, we should be here very ruthless with history. For example, if you ask me, Bergman is so-so. I claim that his decline begins with persona. It's too self-conscious and pretentious. Even Bergman knows it when one, in one of his films he says, I'm afraid I did a Bergman film, which means already imitating his own formula. I think Bergman's true masterpiece is silence. You know, the dark two women coming to some kind of a Balkan-like city. It is because it says Slivovich there. You know, Slivovich, it's all. Uh, and uh, so uh, what I'm saying, I'm not saying everything is equally good, commercial or not. I'm also saying that there are many films made with artistic pretentious or whatever, which are don't do the job. And there are hidden pearls also in what appears so-called commercial films. For example, another one which pretends to be, but it's not artistic, is uh, the guy called not Alfonso Cuaron, the other guy who did uh, 20, 24 grams and... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I spoke in it, he openly confessed to me that, you know, he has his formula, these three parallel stories and how they interact, and he totally manipulates in the sense of he wants to squeeze all possible. He's, for me, just a good artisan, first I put it. No, he lacks something. I think paradoxically, although he's regarded more highly than Guillermo del Toro, I think Guillermo del Toro has more of a substance of an artist. We have time for one more question. Or, or two, okay, I mean, I, I mean. But, but we were just, uh, I call this first rose nomenclatura seats, but you did, pro you know, people usually put the white papers to signal they're busy, but then usually, of course, those people never come, and then you have this stupid signal, so let's move.
towards the working class, no? But also there was here a gentleman, here and there, no? Please, you were first and then... Okay, the lady, okay. I hope not the Hitchcockian lady with the glasses, because you know that in Hitchcock's films, the lady with glasses is one permanent motive, and it's usually pointedly a kind of a nasty, non-attractive lady to add further insult to injury, it's usually played by his daughter, Patricia Heisley. So, okay, let's have the lady with the glasses, please. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, simple question. Again, what I was trying to say is that first, I think they are, but they are hidden. For example, for me, I, I, oh, okay, I will give you an example, which will be maybe very problematic. I also had a clip, but we didn't have time. Let's take Holocaust. Spielberg, mm, no. The first condition for me to have a good Holocaust movie is that it has to be a comedy. No, no, I'm not kidding to avoid any misunderstanding. I saw this argument in Jerusalem and they accepted it. Because you know what's the problem of a tragedy? Uh, a tragedy still, how to put it, presupposes a certain dignity. To be a tragic hero, you have to have a minimum of dignity to then, you know, like, I don't admit this judgment, I resist, and so on. But I think that when things go really hard, horrifying, it's, you cannot have a tragedy in Gulag, you cannot have a tragedy in Auschwitz, where you are reduced to what they call Muslimen and Bribelevi, this living dead and so on. It's so precisely when things go really bad, you only can do it as a comedy. Because again, you concede to the Nazis too much if you do a tragedy, so it's not that. Now, which type of comedy? I am, as you can expect, opposed to La Vita e Bella. Why? Because what I don't like is that at the end, you have the five minutes which are where you should cry, not laugh. You know where, you know the story, La Vita e Bella, not blah, blah, blah. So at the end, you know, the guy learns how father sacrificed himself. Now let me tell you what I would have thought about it. What I would have done with La Vita e Bella to make it a little bit like Chaplin today questioning. The story should have been changed in two ways. And it would be even much more, I wouldn't say tragic, but terrifying. First, what if the story is exactly the same, just at the end, not the father, but the son gets shot. And the father learns that all his stage, or even better. What if we have exactly the same story we have, just that at the end, father learns that the son knew all the time that Father is just telling him a lie, telling him this is just a big competition. But just the son pretended to believe his father, not to hurt his father. You know, this is always this wonderful, terrifying mo mo moment where you think you are keeping the other innocent for his own good. But then when you learn that the other basically knows all, but just pretends to believe you not to, this would have made it better. My Chaplin like, the truly horrifying is, did you see, is it Lina Wertmiller or who, Pasqualino Sette Bellezze? It's a guy also about an Italian seducer is put into, I don't know which Auschwitz, whatever, and there 
he finds out that the only way to survive is to seduce the couple, who is a big, fat, ugly German woman. And then you have this extremely painful, disgustingly funny scenes where he does it. And then the woman says, okay, now you will survive, but you have to do this and this, like select which of your colleagues will be shot. So that there is no redemption at the end, nice crying. It's just what remains after the laughter is utter despair. He survives, but deprived of the dignity of life. Because, you know, I more and more like this line of German, you know, once dissident, Wolf Biermann, who allegedly took this from some, I think, Breton, old surrealists, where they said that the true question is not the religious one, is there life after death? The true question is, is there life before death? Like, are we really alive? So it's very nicely formulated that at the end, after laughter, he survives, but it's not really alive. Already one Austrian-Jewish writer said this nicely. He said that when we betray our principle no, for survival, the, the price we usually pay is our life itself. Like, you think you are alive, you are not really. So, for example, that is an unsettling one. Then, for example, of classical Hollywood, do you know one... Okay, Altmans are my... No, no, there are many excellent films. For example, my ideal, Atom Egoyan, Sweet Hereafter. It's a perfect example of what I call the ethical act where the girl there tells, the, tells a lie. Tells a lie just to ruin a certain game and so on, ethically. So, in other words, we don't have necessarily to go to some poor third world countries or whatever, although I do admire them. For example, I don't know, in China today, still life, that type of films, or the new Romanian wave, wave, I admire it, and so on. No, things are around, and I think things can be done inside, outside Hollywood, if you want, and so on, and so on, just with patience. For example, I recently, I mentioned, discovered incredible masterpiece, I claim, John Frankenheimer Seconds, with Rock Hudson, about this a guy you pay to be reinvented, they change your face, so that you officially die, but adopt a new life, and then becomes a total nightmare where he wants to return to old life and so on. It's, I think, one of the absolute, one of the absolute Hollywood masterpieces. So there is hope. One shouldn't be too much of a pessimist here. One more, maybe. One more question I think it's still both. No, what, let me give you just a general reaction. One thing which makes me sad often is how, and I don't want to draw this stupid conclusion that you need a little bit of uh, repression, but look how many directors were doing pretty good movies when there was still Cockney's Terror, no? And look Kishlovsky, no? I mean, I think his best films are still the one shot in the dark age of Jaroszelski dictatorship. Like, for me, the masterpiece of Kislovsky is usually Pripadek. It's translated as Blind Chance. Then what happened when he got freedom? He started to do new age films about beautiful women, how should I put it? And the whole treasure is, I could probably, I learned from his friend Agnieszka Holland that, of course, as an old East European, he had affairs with all of them, no? 
So basically, let's do a deep new age film, and the new age death is a pretext so that I can sleep with 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 Juliette Binoche, with 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 uh, with what's the other one, Julie Delpy, and so on. No, so uh, and it's the same with Andrei Vaida. No, he ended now with doing Pantadeus and similar big Polish national epics and so on. Go to Michalkov. He did that one of the worst films of all times. Uh, how is it called, that one, The Barber of Siberia, or whatever, no? So, uh, uh, how to put it, uh, uh, so uh, I think that what can, and here one should be very brutal, what happens is first that now we are confronting the truth in the sense of was there any substance or not, like in ex-Yugoslavia, and they hate me because I already said this in Slovenia. I think it's the only you, Bosnians and Serbs, who had a minimal true substance. Like, you know, that it's a real cinematography. In Slovenia, maybe now it's happening with these younger guys, Cvitkovic and so on, probably. But before the last 10 years, we were just shooting theater, doing ridiculous things. It, ontologically, it was not cinema. So there is a chance here and there. For example, I admire this last wave of wonderfully ironic, wonderfully done Romanian films and so on. No, So I think that the problem is maybe at this level not so much east-west, but how to invent a specific color, not in any folkloric sense or whatever. They are the worst. And this is my problem, not any racism or what with Kusturica underground. I asked myself a simple question. That image of Balkan that you get in underground, this kind of eternal orgy, as he put it, prolonged suicide, people fornicate, kill and drink all the time. My reproach is not that he is too Balkan, but that he is too Western. That image of Balkan is the Western fantasy of Balkan. He is staging, giving to the West what they, what the, what they want. So, uh, uh, and, uh, so again, I see chances here. What interests me even more is how rules are changed. For example, did you notice how in the last year or two, the Chinese are practically doing better Hollywood than Hollywood? In the sense that this hero, House of the Flying Daggers, Michael, these are better, be, be, better historical spectacles than Hollywood. So I always like to imagine, and also with these good, relatively marginal American films, from these post-Altman films, no? I would like to live in a world, maybe we will, when like 15, 10 years from now, we lone intellectuals who like serious films will start a petition. Enough of multiplexes with Chinese superproductions. We want a small art cinema to show American films there and so on, no? Maybe, maybe that's the good thing about globalization. Not, let's not just condemn it. Far from those who think globalization means we will all eat hamburgers and so on. No, we, means you Bosniaks, us Slovenes, or so ever, Ireland, uh, Iceland. Globalization is a big chance for smaller nations to have their moment, how should I put it, no? So it's, I think, it's a chance for all of us here. So again, I don't think things are so bad, so bad at, the, at this level. But I totally hate, disagree with you, this how should I put it, European spirit, you know, when they do it in the style of Brussels bureaucracy. Like, this is what I hate, and even now, I don't know, did he take it seriously or not? Did you see the first of the color tri trilogy, Blue, by uh, Kislovsky? 
You know all the cheat of the anthem of Europe song and so on? From what I unfortunately heard from some of his friends, he was so stupid that he he took that seriously, has the you know? <laughs> Because for, for us it's so... Uh, I mean, we really need more of your spirit. Your, I mean, Bosnia. For example, this was, you know, where I had a true racist experience. When I was at some Hitchcock conference in United States in 92 or 3, when, and I gave just an analysis of a Hitchcock film. And people there started to attack me. Your country is in flames. How dare you to talk about such a frivolous thing like Hitchcock? Then I exploded. I told them first, ah, and you can. No, this was racism at its purest. I am only allowed, you know, I hate this kind of a, a Balkan victim tourism. You are supposed to go there and do, oh, horrible nightmare and basically asking them for help and so on, no? So, uh, and this is one thing. And the other thing, I told them, look at top list, another list, and so on. I mean, without this almost obscenity of top list, another list, you wouldn't survive here. That's what you need. Here, you were in real trouble, so you didn't have time to play victims in the Western way, no? You probably played victims when some stupid Western journalists came, no? No, you were victims, but you got my point. Precisely because of that, you didn't have time to play victims, no? It's incredible. This is the most dangerous racism, I claim today. No, no longer this sympathetic racism, but this be a good victim, no? Be a good victim, and we will help you. <laughs>